Let's look at John chapter 4. Let's take a look here at the text. It's a little bit abbreviated. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time in this text this morning. And I'm going to probably, we're going to hover over this, over John 4 for a minute. Because I want to explore together what worship is, understanding worship. I found myself kind of in a conundrum. I don't know if you share this or not, but I was actually trying to sit down and define worship, like actually come up with a definition. I couldn't come up with it. It's not easy. I mean, it's, what is worship? What is it? And, and I was reminded of a different definition. I won't say what it was, but, but it works with this. I don't know how to define worship, but I know it when I see it. Does that make sense? Because I, I know that's true. I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. I'm aware of it. All right, let's go into uh, the, women, the woman at the well, as it's often told, called. We don't know her name. It's not shared with us. She lives in a little town called Sychar, which is a Samaritan village north of Jerusalem. And as we, as we talked about last time, she is in the nexus. She is in the, in the weave and... Uh, of a culture, of a culture that is controlled by racism, sexism, classism, and religious bigotry. And Jesus reaches through that entire mess right in your heart. It's very beautiful. So we're going to take a look at this. And one of the things that I think we should do exegetically, kind of narrative, is to compare it with Nicodemus. But if you don't know the Nicodemus story, then you won't know what to compare it to. You can read John 3 on your phone if you want. But they're very different. And Christ is mysterious and unavailable and cryptic with religious leaders. But he's transparent in a powerful way with the town tramp. Why? Why such a remarkable difference in Christ's ministry style between a religious figure and the town tramp. That's a clue to the heart of God, I think, in the gospel. Let's take a look here. We're going to read this together. I'm not going to annotate the story as much this week because we did that last week, but um, uh, some of the, the cultural mores are a little bit alien to us. Let's read it, and then we'll see what we get from it. Uh, let's answer this question first. Why do we trust the ancient texts of our faith? He whom God sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without limits. Jesus said to her, we're in the middle of the conversation, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Well, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have, now have is not your husband. I'm going to call attention to this phrase right here because the hint in the, in the grammar is 
you finally, he's saying, you've, you've finally spoken the truth. What you have said is true. You get the sense that she hasn't said anything true yet. The woman said to him, I, Sir, I perceive that you were a prophet, which is a very nice response to being called, to being that point pointed out. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, in the place where people, is the place where people ought to worship. She brings up a, a, a theological smokescreen over her, over her sexual promiscuity. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. <laughs> I, never, I never noticed that before. I don't know how many times in the Bible Jesus says, believe me, but man, I, I can't think of a more powerful command. All right, so anyway, okay. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, Well, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Father, uh, we pray for the Holy Spirit to conquer, to interpret, to anoint, to fill. Father, I pray that I would not no longer simply be a man standing here at a podium, but I would be a man standing in your will to be your mouthpiece. And we wouldn't just be people sitting idly in a room to hear someone speak to us. But we are people who are here to hear from you, to hear our God. So speak better than I can. And speak to us better than we can listen. In Christ's name, amen. King David. King David. Very passionate man. Very passionate. I mean, crazy. You know, we, we, we associate David's passion, maybe his worship. He wrote a number of worship songs and poems. But we associate it, often we think about David's passion, we think of his unfortunate passion, right? With Bathsheba, his adultery. I mean, he pursued it with vigor. And if anybody knows anything about David in this modern world, they know David as the adulterer. He sees, he sees Bathsheba bathing naked and he possesses her. He must possess her, and he does. Okay. Do you know what's interesting about that? That maybe that's the only way you know about David, but I know another story about David you might not be as familiar with. Because you see, David didn't always worship women. Sorry. Didn't always worship women or worship the idea of having a woman or some sexual drive that tormented him. No, 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 no. In fact, David was controlled and animated with passion for God. And you see it in his worship. Worship. That's what we're talking about today. Worship. Worship. Now, I, what I'm thinking of is this scene. Uh, well, I'll back up a little bit. Back up a little bit. 
The people of the ancient world were always worshiping. And, and, and in fact, the people of God were told to worship him. And instead of worshiping him, they began to worship a box. I don't see a good box. Let's say that Bozy box right there. It's bigger than that. It's called the Ark. But they began to worship the little things, the things, instead of God. So God took the ark from them. And this whole story, this is a, this, there's a story of it being restored. So the people of God are going to get their ark back, which is the seat for God. And they're going to get it back. And I'm not going to go into what that is and everything. But I just want you to follow this much. They try to restore worship. And in fact, so they take that beautiful totem of ancient worship and they put it on ox cart. And of course, they, it's a brand, I'm sure it was a brand new ox cart with ox and everything. And they're going to take them and they're going to make do worship right. Right? Is the idea. So, of course, it's in the cart, and this is before paved roads, right? So, ruts. You ever seen a really good rut in the road? Well, that ox cart, wouldn't you know, it hits a rut, and the ark, this sacred part of ancient worship, begins to slide off the back. What would you do, Mike, if you were standing right there? What would you have done? And you know what would have happened to you, Mike? You would have died. You would have died. Because they weren't obeying the rules of worship. They had taken worship into their own hands, do it as they pleased, as they liked, and in a fashion that seemed appropriate. But it wasn't what God had told them to do. They had chosen a different way. They had chosen a kind of an almost an irreverent way. They had, they had bypassed all the rules and just went, you know, we, we're worshiping. And as if that was okay. It wasn't. And the first thing I learned about worship, worship is, we're not talking about worship today, we're talking about something dangerous. In other words, life and death, damnation even if we would say that. You don't go that far, life, death, all these, de- I mean, we're talking about eternal things. Worship is dangerous. But David, in his passion, was disturbed. Actually, the scripture says he was angry. And Uzzah died. He didn't know what to do. Then he finally figures out how to get the ark to move it. And what he does is something even more. He goes even further than the law goes. And every 10, I think it was every 10 paces, and they're taking the ark to Jerusalem this time. Every time it moves 10 feet, you know what they were doing? Did a sacrifice. Another 10 feet, did a sacrifice. And another 10 feet, did a Imagine how long it must have taken them to get to where they were going. Do you know what David was doing the whole time? He was dancing. Something had happened. And the fact that God was now letting the ark, he was, God was, they were taking the ark in and Uzzah had died. Somebody, worship was dangerous. And David knew it now. But he also knew that in the midst of a holy God and the terrors of worshiping a holy God was this gift of love. And he knew that even though it was dangerous, there was an opportunity to delight in God as God ordained. And so what does he do? We don't know. But he was dancing so vigorously, so wildly, with such abandon, that people, his wife at the time, was making fun of him. She was embarrassed. David, when she confronts him about it later, says... You know, the maids will talk about me. And I will become even more undignified than this to worship. 
I don't know how to define worship, but I know it when I see it. In the, in the passions of who David was, we saw him fall for Bathsheba. But in the passion of who David was, was a picture of true worship. So, that's going to, this will be our, our outline today for us, okay? What is worship? So I want to go towards it. I'm not sure, but I know where I see it. I'm going to use a working definition here. To delight in Jesus with all that we are. I went to put passion. I couldn't think, what's the verb? I, but delight. There could be a love and a, but there's something active in delight, isn't there? Delight has a, has a vibrancy, a sense of, a sense of joy and expectation and passion. To delight in Jesus with all we are. Now, I'm gonna, what I was most fascinated by the text, now, this, this subject of worship is huge. I mean, I could, I could probably preach on this for half a year. That's how big a topic this is. But so, what is worship? That's our working definition right now. To delight in Jesus with all that we are. When I say worship to you, though, you probably have two different things you might think of. One, you might just be thinking about this right here, right? Isn't this worship? Wait, this is what we're doing right here, right? This is classically when we say worship. It's we gather together to, to adore, to confess, to thank, to listen to God, to, to listen to his word, to go to, the, to have communion. This is the stuff of worship. And you know, it's a pretty technical meaning, pretty narrow. The scriptures don't know that. They really don't. Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is what? Your reasonable act of worship. And it really seems in Christ and in the scriptures, worship is a way of describing not what Adele's doing here merely, but what she's doing with Callan and Isaac on Tuesday. How she loves Peter. What she... And it extends and defines and encompasses and reaches into the depths of our lives. That's worship. But I was thinking about this. I I find this. I wonder, I was imagining myself speaking today, for example. And I was imagining you not caring. Like not being like really challenged by this, or not being alerted, or not being because we, I think, have an assumption that we don't really worship. I think it's the kind we don't. I think that if you were to tell somebody who loves the giants that they worship, they probably like that's not what I think of it. As. You know, people don't think of it that way. We don't call worship what we identify. We would say he looks like he's worshiping, but he would never think that, right? And the fans shouting on the sidelines wouldn't say I'm a worshiper. So we don't have a self-definition. We don't think deeply about these ideas. But remember what he said last week. The life of God is an internal, begins in an internal way. Not merely an external. And the idea we worship nothing is absurd. And what I'm saying is, is that to get at this problem, to get at a definition, and to get at a place where you're repenting or believing or turning to God with this part of your life, we need, to, we need to re-understand the world. And what I mean is this right here, this little model, it's very small here. I wish I could have done the whole board with it. But worship only makes sense if you believe what the scriptures say about the universe. 
And what he says is there's a creator and there's a creature. And all of the universe here is meant, it's like a mirror, is meant to be a reflector back of holiness, goodness, wisdom, justice, immensity, power, everything. Everything we see is meant to be a demonstration, an unfolding, an illustration, an analogy for you to perceive with the wonders of what God. Look at the Magellanic Cloud through, through, the, through, through the eye of the telescope of the Hubble. God is screaming back from the edges of reality. I am amazing. You see? <laughs> you can see it. Uh, one of those pictures actually called the eye of God. It looks like an eye looking back across a billion years, light years into space. See, we think we worship nothing, but the reality is we are literally creatures of worship. That's what we are. We are worshipers. And everything we do has a taste of worship in it. Everything's got, we, we just can't help it. We're worshiping. And it happens everywhere. And it's this deep surrender of our delight in something else. And it can be perverse, it can be weird, it can be odd, it can be, but it's everywhere. Worshippers. We are, every one of us. That's, that definition of ourselves is what's so necessary. You see, you don't know, maybe you don't realize it because of our Darwinian ideas that you're, a, you're, you're you know, sex, for example, or life, or it's just a slap of animals together. None of that's true. That's all lies. That's all lies. You were a creature created by a God. And a God sought and made the sinews of Simon to raise his hands and give him glory. That's the real story. This wood, there's lights, this world, from the atomic structure to the galaxies of galaxies, was meant to be a revelation of God and his worship. What do the angels say over and over again? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. Worship. See, until you understand this, you're not going to understand yourself. You're not going to understand why, how deceived you get. You're not going to understand your idolatry. And this is where I want to go next, is we must engage in this generation on an idol quest. Not I-D-L-E, I-D-O-L quest. Why? I was talking to a gentleman this week who was sharing with me how he had discarded the religion of his youth. And he was convinced that the narrative of the Bible had no satisfactory input into what he knew to be the real world. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> sure we do. And he, and he said he was done with Christianity, and that was fine. He was trying to be polite and respectful, because I know his parents, <laughs> you know, doing all that stuff. He's being nicer to me than I think he really felt. But what I was encouraged, I shared this with Will, what I was encouraged by and I told him this, was the possibility that his atheism was the only way he could know God. Why do I say that? Because time and time again, every generation, every bunch of people has to discover that the God they made up in their head is not the same God as the Bible. I want you to explain, let me illustrate. You will meet people who will come to it, and it can be alarming as a believer. And you're like, this guy, Ted, that's the one I'm Ted, we know Ted. Uh, think of a name nobody has here. Tim, anybody Tim? No, I mean, Tim's here. Okay. Tim will be our, 
evil person here. <laughs> you, know, you see, Tim, I've read this beautiful story about a wonderful, amazing theologian. I remember this. His name was something toy, but very famous theologian. And he was used as an illustration for many years because he rejected God completely at the end of his life. But I don't get discouraged by those stories anymore because I desperately need people to realize their God is false before they can realize that the God of the Bible is true. Does that make sense? As long as you have a false God, a false image of God, you have a God you made up, and evangelicalism will hand you a made-up God as quickly as you can ask for one. I'm sorry it does. A God that, oh, my God's so loving. My God's this. I don't care what your God is. The God of the Bible, the God of the Scripture is the only God to which I am called to be accountable or to speak about. Not some God of my own fancy or fantasy. The possibility of a good atheism, therefore, is this. When people finally give up the false God of their youth, because they had to. And that's, the, that's what was happening again and again in the South. Young men had to come to a place where they finally gave up the God of their youth so they could come to Christ. Because the Jesus of their youth was just a, a friend or a buddy or maybe, who knows, what false idea creeps in. The possibility of a good atheism is what we're after. But in our idle quest, so any. That guy, Tim, or these other people, I want them to become atheists. But you and I need to work on our false views that mix in with the good ones. Because it happens to all of us. And we have false ideas that come in of God that we need to repent of. Because we get, we, every one of us makes God into something pleasing to us sometimes. So that we can get away with things. Oh, God's okay with my sin. The God that's okay with your sin is a false God. Right? <laughs> There's no God out there who's okay with your sin. But we make that up, right? Oh, he's okay with it. It's all right. He doesn't care. He doesn't mind. That's not, that's not God at all. Let us excavate our idols and be set free. But let's find them. First. It's hard to find idols. You know why? Because your heart's so tricksy. Because your heart is such a, your heart is gollum. Your heart is just constantly trying. It doesn't want to be exposed. I'm serious, and, and convincing people that they're idolaters is hard. But there's a couple ways we can find our idols, and I want you to invite you with these. And one of the ways is to ask. <laughs> you can ask God to show you your idols. And you notice I have an arrow up and an arrow down. You can also ask other people. And this is a little tender. I've offered this before, and nobody ever takes me up on it. Well, actually, I think the bat. You know, we talked about Kyle today. Kyle followed up with women. I asked him. I've offered this before. <laughs> if, if you want help finding your idols, I'll help you. Because usually other people can see your idols better than you can. You think the things you love are good things. Other people watch you and go, look at that Yahoo. Does, does she understand what she's worshiping? Ask our father and ask somebody. You know who's one of the best idol detectors in our church? McLaren. It's probably because he was such a great idolater most of his life. But... Be that as it may, however he gets there, God gives him a gift. And that's when the gifts God gives elders. And friends is an ability to help and, sell, and help Satan. Now, so, you know, still, it might be hard. These are a few little questions I've found. Location, location, location. Do you know how you know you have an idol? What do you always know where it is? I mean, what do you always know how much is there? What is one thing you always know where it is? Your investments. 
This is a clue. Whenever you know where something is all the time, there's an idol sitting there. Kids, your family, who knows what it's going to be? Because good things become idols. And one of the ways you always know an idol, location, location, you know where it is. You know right away. I, um, <laughs> I remember years ago, um, you know, buying a little Bitcoin or something, like a little part of Bitcoin or something. And I sold it later. But I remember the minute I bought it, how often I would check the Bitcoin price. What am I doing right there? Location, location, location. All of a sudden I become aware. How many of you know exactly what your stock prices are or what they've been? Or if you can guess within 5%, 2% or a couple points. Makes you wonder. Fear, fear of loss is here. What's the one thing you're afraid of losing? Follow that trail, follow it, your kids, again, career, just follow it, your reputation, because they're all good things, but what happens with good things? What do they become? Idols. You know what our hearts are like? Even with the good things we make, we're like, how many of you have seen a 3D printer printer in action? They're cool, aren't they? I mean, it's really cool to watch a 3D printer. Uh, Maybe we need one for the church. I don't know. Can we think of a good reason to get one? Because I just want to watch it print. But look into your own soul. For we are idol factories. There's a little 3D printer sitting inside you that will make an idol out of anything. Something you can worship and adore. Something you can be What are you afraid of losing? And final question, this is a killer. This will always identify an idol. If I only had that, I'd be okay. Things would be better. If I only had blank, whatever it is, money, success, love, relationship, romance, uh, successful church, look, I'm, I'm a part of the story too. I'm capable of idolatry. The better the thing, the closer it becomes an idol. Uh, in fact, the easier, the, the more holy and good a thing can be, the more, the more, more deceptive an idol it can be. And one of the biggest ones is family. Christ hits this idol constantly. Focus in the family was the evangelical version of idolatry. We're not permitted to focus on the family. We're to focus on Christ and his family, period. Because Christ said, if a man loves his father, brother, mother, sister more than me, he has no part of me. Christ would reject focus on the family point blank. Because that's not the focus we're called to have. Good thing. If I only had a family, if I only had the great career, if I only worked at Google, if I only had, if I only lived in Pack Heights. That, that would be okay, wouldn't it? If I only had a house in San Francisco. Quick, keep dreaming. All right. Why do we do this? Because we want to worship him. What's the answer? To worship him. Okay, this is where I can't, I can't even go as deep in the text as I want. Do you know what's in this text? Trinity. Let's see if you can find Father, Son, Spirit. It's all over it. Trinity, the triune, eternal God. Don't you see? Because you could, Christ could only tell you about worship. And John would only teach you about worship if he was doing what? Presenting all of God to you. Oh, yeah. The Father seeking, and the Son is bringing, and the Spirit is delivering. And, oh, it's all there. Father, Son, Spirit. Worship him, and those who worship him was worship in spirit and truth. So this what really attracted me to this text was that 
God is seeking worshipers like this. You see that one verse that say, God is seeking worshipers. The reason I was drawn to that, and that's going to become kind of the heart of our, of our, uh, of our investigation for the next few weeks, is because that's a nonsense statement. You know that. That's a nonsense statement. God is seeking worshipers is nonsense. Why is that nonsense? Anybody? God seeks nothing. God needs nothing. God knows all things. Therefore, what does God have to seek or look for? Has he lost something? Has he misplaced some worshipers somewhere and now he's looking for them? Pay attention. When Jesus or any, and the prophets do this sometimes, they will use God in a way that's irreverent. Why? To wake up people who are sleepy in their orthodoxy. Why? Because that beautiful piece right there, God is seeking something. Anybody worth a salt knows anything about that Old Testament, even remotely knows God never changes, needs nothing, seeks nothing, and cannot be like He's not God. But what Jesus is inviting us into is a whole new idea of worship, which is what? The possibility of a God who can be who seeks. Gravity doesn't seek, does it? Thermodynamics doesn't seek. Forces don't seek. God is not a force. What is God, Michael? What is God? God is a person. Persons seek. And the invitation here, the, the thing that's ripe in Christ's thinking and mind as he reveals who he is, is what? God is not what you think he is. He's a person. Persons seek. And this is an idea of love that seeks. I already know my wife, but I seek her. Because I, I want to see her more. I want to see, see, we do these things, we're constantly, and, and what's hidden in this, hidden in plain view is what? The wonderful news, good news of the gospel, which we never suspected. Where God is saying, I seek a personal knowledge of you. Don't you seek that? That's worship, right? That's the opportunity. It's a part of this making himself available in immediate and tangible and fear. The time has come and what is now what? Christ is saying, Christ is, how could Christ get his hands around this? How could the woman at the well even begin to understand that should she reach out and say, and just touch his shoulder, she has touched eternal love from beyond all creations. Oh my goodness. She would have known. How could she know? She would have guessed, right? But he knows. He tells her worship in spirit and truth. Why spirit? Because the only thing that will create worship in us is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's that spirit he's talking about. Ah, What does that mean then? The spirit brings the expulsive power of a new passion. The expulsive power of a new passion. You see, why is he declaring here to worship? Because he has to be? Because he wants to be. See, Jesus made something new in McLaren. Same thing happened to Mike. Same thing's happened in Simon, Melody, and Abby. You see, why are we here to do this? <laughs> and all right, so let's go back to these idols and how powerful they can be. Career, success, family. How can we ever die to those idols? <gasps> what about the Holy Spirit and the expulsive power? The way it drives out 
other passions. You see? You see, if you have a passion by the Spirit for God, it drives out the other passions. Why? Because you're a worshiper. And you only have room for one passion at a time. <laughs> we're, we're pretty simple. We're not just worshipers. We're fairly simple worshipers. And we cannot worship two things. We can't. If you can multitask in worship, you're kidding yourself. If anybody tries to multitask in worship, your justice, you know, the Lord rebuke you. Why? You can only love one thing at a time like that. And so what is the possibility and the potential? He is saying God is seeking in a personal way to deliver the spirit to, to us so we can worship. Praise him. I'm serious, guys. Praise him. Praise him in your heart right now. Praise him. Let your heart go. Praise him. You can praise God at any time for this stuff. This is wonderful stuff. But it gets better. God is seeking worshipers in spirit, in the holy hands of the Holy Spirit, and what truth. But what does Christ say in John 14? I am the way, the truth. Truth. Christ says, I am the truth. Oh, it's even better. It's even better. Do you know what Christ says at the end here? What does Christ say? I who speak to you am he. Does anybody hear it? Anybody hear it? Anybody hear the name of God? We translate this all the time in our Old Testament passage. You know why I translate this in the Old Testament passage? Do you know why I translate the sacred name Yahweh, Jehovah, as I am? So you won't miss it. What is Christ saying to the woman? I am. And what he just said is, I am equal to God. And he just told her. <laughs> he called himself the I am. You get your head around it, because I can't get my head around it. And he doesn't do that to the religious leader who would have catapulted him into probably some sort of religious stardom. No, he tells the girl who's, who can't say no to anybody in a small town, and he gives her everything. What is active here at the end? Why is this an invitation to worship? Because Jesus, in worship, in his love, that's right, in his love, creates worship out of the people who what does she worship? Love? I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. She worships you. Maybe. Maybe she's afraid of being alone. But there's worship in there. Christ is not ashamed of her worship. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to walk into There's a lot of worship lessons in this text. Worship, what does worship begin? It begins with our honesty. We're going to talk about that next week. Confession of sin. All the different parts of adoration are all here. This is beautiful stuff. But what I want to do, how I want to end this today, is to call you to this passion. I've written a lot more in my notes about this. We're out of time, though. Um, this is one of those sermons that literally... I can one, two, three, four, five. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pages of notes, and I still don't know what I'm talking about. I still feel like I'm a child swimming in the deep end of the pool, and I'm holding on to the edge because otherwise, if I let go, what will happen? And there's no bottom. <laughs> there's no bottom to this pool. You just keep going. Uh, I had something I want to share with you at the end, and we'll be done here. Um, that really hit me while we were sitting here in worship. Um, oh, God. Oh, I'm going to stand with this. 
I, I, I hinted at the angels. Um, the angels in glory. There's four of them. I don't know why there's four. I don't know why there's four. And so one, two, three, four. Isaiah sees them. Ezekiel sees them later. They got wings. They're moving. And Ezekiel sees them fluttering around the throne. John sees them in God 1. What are they seeing? There's his worship. And it's always the same across a thousand years of history. Why? Because it's eternity. The angels shout out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. You've heard me teach about this before. Because I love that picture. For a number of reasons. For a whole bunch of reasons. I, I suspect they've never repeated themselves. Because they're always discovering he's more holy than they thought. Every time they say it, it's a new discovery. Okay, we can get there. We'll talk about eternity. That's wonderful. But here's what really gets me. They're not automatons. They're not worship robots. They're not worship robots. That's really important. You know why it's so important? Would you like a worship robot? <laughs> no, we would be the point of something you programmed to bow down. But then you get something to bow down to you all day long. I bet you there's a market for this in Silicon Valley. <laughs> we could create a worship. That's scary, isn't it? <laughs> I remember one time as a kid playing one of these, uh, one, I loved arcade games, and one of them was a racing game. And whenever you came in at the racing game at the end, you were like in a stadium, and all these crowds would start cheering. And I remember being fairly young when I was playing it and kind of feeling good about it. Talk about feeling good for no good reason. <laughs> so maybe there's somebody out there that would love that, whose ego, yeah. This, this, this city's driven by ego, I'm sure. But uh, mm, mm, there's something here, though. There's something here I want you to tease out. These creatures of unimaginable power, burning, they're called, burning seraphs. They're so alive with power, they burn and radiate. They, they're, they're, they're beings of enormous power, and they are where they want to be. Don't you get it? Why are they real worshiping? Because it's the best, the highest, the most wonderful use of their power and knowledge because they have chosen and been chosen by him. And it's the great privilege and opportunity. And it never ends being amazing to experience. <laughs> you see, that's an invitation into the delight of God. <laughs> I would so delight in God. I mean, so be filled with worship, me and Hal and Corey and all of us together, so alive with God's worship, that what are we? And the scripture talks about it. It's a well of surging. What is it? Remember the water? What does the water do? <clears throat> the living water. It's, the scriptures describe it right in the text. It wells up. Transformative worship. And the death of our idols. Are you with me? That's what I want. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, the things we have worshipped. Oh, my goodness. The good things we have corrupted in worship. Oh, Father, help us to perceive our idolatry. Why? Oh, so we can be set free to worship you. Like David whirling before the ark with all his soul. It's dangerous, we know. It's a dangerous thing to worship the living God. But it's an exhilarating, enthralling, 
wonderful opportunity for us. However sinful we may be, you meet us in love. Father, we don't want to be like Nicodemus. We don't want to be clever theologians who want you to fit into our plan or want you to want to understand your riddles. No, we don't want that. We want to be like this woman. And this woman, when she realizes you love her, goes crazy because you have covered her sin in Jesus. She invites everybody. Father, I pray for our worship that it would be something that you create and be pleasing to you in return. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Worship. It makes sense then that given how worship can be so powerful a uh, thing that Christ uses the most elemental parts of life, right? Do you get it? How worship's a whole part of life? Why? Because eating and drinking is how we know him right here. <laughs> It's, it's like God wants to take his love, his life, his, his reality, and wants to plug it right into Peter's life. Because Peter has to eat every day. Right? On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Ah, this is good stuff. Good stuff. Isn't it amazing, then? Isn't it amazing? We don't know if Nicodemus became a Christian or not. But most religious leaders didn't. So let me begin by a warning. If you are here because you want to be a religious person, then you are condemned. This is not a religious ceremony. This is people meeting the living God. So good people who think they're good are unworthy of my Father's love and our Savior's passion. Who gets the news that the I Am has come? The town tramp. That's you and me, Mike, right? That's us. That's me. So only sinners can come to this table. If for some reason you are skeptical of my claims... Heaven knows I would be. Can, you, can I just pause and say something? I'm going to miss Megan and Nate so much. But I'm going to miss Paul and Elizabeth even more. And not only that, don't you think that they're proof? We just, we, we, God has given us an amazing church. <laughs> Let's stand. We're going to do communion now. Uh, it's our habit. Will you take the bread and wine back to your seats? And we'll take it together. Uh, skeptics, I, I encourage you to watch and, uh, and uh, be envious. And let's, uh, let's do this. We're going to do the uh, Apostles' Creed, which is our statement of faith, which I actually was sent to in order to participate. Um, so I ask you, Christian, what you believe. Then we'll sing a song and eat and drink together after the song is done. So Christian, brother, sister, tell me, what is it you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He ascended into heaven.